0: Take your Bibles and open to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We're continuing our Mythbusters series today. We're busting common myths concerning core doctrines. And as I said last time, these core doctrines are fundamental and essential to the Christian faith. And if you don't believe these core doctrines, then you're not a part of the true church, of Jesus Christ. You are believing another gospel and following another Jesus. This series is important because truth matters and we're all about truth at Liberty Church. We, we are pursuing truth. Uh, truth is what transforms us. Truth is what sanctifies us and we'll learn that in a few moments but truth matters and I believe that we live in a day and age where everybody needs a good dose of truth our key verse for this entire series is 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verse 3 and 4 and it reads for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching when they won't endure the truth They won't want to hear it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When people will not endure the truth, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Paul said to young Pastor Timothy, When that happens... People will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The turning away is active and intentional. People intentionally turn away from listening to the truth. But when you intentionally or actively turn away, you will ultimately, passively and unintentionally wander off into myths and... That's why we even titled this series myth busters because people have a natural proclivity to turn away and wander off. And, uh, we don't want you to do that. We want you to stay the course. We want you to hold to the trustworthy word as taught. We want you to abide in the teachings so that you win a crown of righteousness. Uh, you know, uh, 2 John 1.9 says that if anyone goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching, they do not have God. We want you to have God. John goes on to say that uh, if anyone abides in the teaching of Christ, if anyone abides in sound doctrine, if anyone loves the truth, they will have both the Father and the Son. So, the core doctrine we're going to talk about today is the core doctrine of Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Jesus as our Savior and Lord. I asked you to open to Luke chapter 2, uh, and our text today is verse 10 and 11. Now, this is typically a passage that we only ever read <laughs> at Christmas time because it is the birth announcement of Jesus Christ by the angel to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night but uh, I want I want us to hear what the angels say about Jesus at his birth announcement and so in Luke chapter 2 verse 10 it reads then the angel said to them do not be afraid now fear is a natural reaction to god's message and god's messenger And that's what an angel is, right? A a messenger from God, and this messenger brings a message, and it's natural for us, when we, uh, when we are confronted by God's messenger, to have uh, fear, to be afraid, or to have reverence or awe. But the angel says to the shepherds, "Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. Why? Because." I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now, the phrase to all people here refers to God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, when that phrase is used, it refers to the people of Israel. Now, here in the, in the New Testament, it's going to refer to God's chosen, God's elect, God's predestined which is comprised of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But to these Jewish shepherds, the angel says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, listen, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. From day one, Jesus... Was known as Savior and Lord. When his birth was announced that day to the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks, the word used to describe him was Savior and Lord. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is only ever called Savior twice in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, he's called Savior many times in the New Testament, but in the Gospels, he's only ever referred to as Savior twice. Let's look at the other time that he's referred to as Savior. It's John chapter 4 and verse 42. Uh, Jesus just had his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he told her about her life. And she went and told the townspeople to meet this man who told her everything she ever did. And they went out and they listened to Jesus and he taught them and they believed. And so this is what they said in reaction to hearing the teachings of Jesus, hearing God's messenger and God's message in uh, John chapter 4. In verse 40, uh, when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And look at verse 41. Many believed because of his message. In verse 42, then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, but we ourselves have heard him and know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior, Of the world. And it's interesting to me uh, the two groups of people to whom Jesus is described as Savior. The angel describes Jesus as Savior to shepherds, and the Samaritans describe Jesus as Savior. Both groups of people were considered to be low class people, everyday, ordinary people. They were on the lowest rung of society. Uh, And it was a toss-up, a debate between who was lower, the shepherds or the Samaritans, especially in the eyes of the Jewish people. And uh, so here to these low-class people, these ordinary everyday people, Jesus is described as a rescuer, a savior, one who would rescue people. And so I find that fascinating, that uh, Jesus is only referred to as Savior twice in the Gospels, but the idea that the Messiah would be the Savior and a Savior is well established in the Old Testament. Go back to one of the most prominent Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Go to chapter 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 3 says this, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. And then and then Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. The witnesses are the people of Israel, all the people. And the servant is Isaiah. God has chosen these people to be his witness and his servant. Why? That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be any after. Verse 11 says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Here God is claiming to be the only God and only Savior. Turn over a page to Isaiah 45, verse 21 and 22. This theme continues in uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Remember, Isaiah is God's messenger, bringing God's message to God's people. And he says here in chapter 45, verse 21, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior? There is none beside me. God says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Look to me and be saved. Now, that's, I believe, predicting the New Covenant reality, which is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Old Covenant reality is God is the the God of Israel and the people of Israel, His covenant people, His chosen people. But God has predestined a family from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Uh, And the Old Covenant is a type and shadow of the New Covenant reality, the new covenant substance. And so here I believe Isaiah is predicting the new covenant reality uh, under which whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here he says, look to me and be saved. So from our text today, we learn three things quickly. We learn that Jesus, uh, sorry, news of Jesus is a source of great joy or it isn't. News of Jesus is a source of great joy. Remember, the angels said to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy. News of Jesus is a source of great joy, or it isn't. I've said this many times, that the gospel is the most offensive message in all the Bible. Uh, But yet, to those who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. To those who reject it, it is a stumbling block. It is a rock of offense. Jesus and his message is good news for many, but for others, it is not good news. Uh, The birth announcement of Jesus was good news to the shepherds. It was good news to the Magi, but it was bad news to Herod. When King Herod heard of this new king that was born in his territory, his reaction was, kill all the children two years of age and under. Herod wanted to eradicate Jesus. He wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth because he was a threat to his throne. And so news of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is good news of great joy, or it isn't. But make no mistake, this joy is for everyone, but it is only to those who receive it. Remember, the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news, good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Now it is true that it is for all people, but it is only to those who receive it. It's only to those who receive it. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Jesus, having been made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who, uh, to all who would obey Him. He is the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him. Now, eternal salvation is for absolutely everyone in the world, but it is only to those who will receive it. I say it like this the blood of Jesus was sufficient to wash the sin of the entire world. Jesus bore the burden of humanity's sin. All the sin Jesus took with him on the cross. His blood is sufficient to wash it all away, but His blood is only efficient to wash the sins of those who would believe in Him, who would look to Him and be saved. Jesus' blood only washes the sin of those who uh, receive the free gift of salvation. And so at Liberty Church, we're not universalists. We're not inclusivists. Jesus' blood was indeed sufficient for all sin. And uh, this free gift of salvation is available for absolutely everyone. But it only works for those who receive it. Forgiveness is only extended to those who would humble themselves and ask for it. And number three, from our text, we see that Jesus is God's promised rescuer who is himself God. Jesus is God's promised rescuer. God promised a, rec- a rescuer as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Someone to crush the serpent's head. And all throughout the Old Testament, God promised a rescuer and Jesus is God's promised rescuer who is not just a mere mortal but who is God himself. When the angel said to the shepherds that in the city of David a Savior was born who is Christ the Lord they are calling Jesus God. Uh, John chapter 1 tells us that God became flesh that he came down, that he condescended and came to earth. Uh, Jesus took on flesh. Uh, He existed before his incarnation as the eternal word of God. And when he came down and took on flesh, he became God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. And so for all that there is to know about Jesus... The most important thing is that he alone is Savior and Lord. There are so many things to know about Jesus. It was actually John who said at the end of his gospel that this is just the beginning. This is just a a sample of what Jesus said and did. And, And John said something to the effect of, I suppose if everything he said and did were written down, the earth couldn't contain the volumes. There's so much to know about Jesus, but the most important thing to know about Jesus is that he is Savior and Lord. The thief on the cross is a perfect example of of that. He only had time to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I want you to know today that Jesus alone is, is the Savior of the world, and He is God. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it reads, For there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. If you need rescue today, look to Jesus. Jesus. He, and he alone, is the Savior. Now, this series is called Mythbusters, and we're busting common myths concerning core doctrines. And so what I'd like to do today is continue to establish the core doctrine of Jesus as Savior and Lord before we look at some of the myths and bad theology surrounding this core doctrine that people uh, turn away from and wander off into so let's take a few moments to talk about the core doctrine of Jesus as Savior and Lord and we're going to jump around the New Testament a little bit so have your Bible ready and we'll uh, read what the Bible has to say about Jesus as Savior and Lord so let's start with Romans chapter 6 verse 4 to 7 Romans chapter 6, verse 4 to 7 reads like this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Look at this. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been set free from sin. He's been rescued, set free from the bondage and the power of sin. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have been saved by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his finished work. And we share in that through baptism, through the symbolic and spiritual uh, ritual of water baptism. We go under the water, and it symbolizes our spiritual death. And coming up out of the water symbolizes our spiritual resurrection so that the old man can be done away with. And then Paul says, For he who has died has been freed from sin, has been rescued. And so you and I today as followers of Jesus Christ are saved by virtue of Christ's death and his resurrection. But not only are we saved, John 17, 17 uh, tells us something amazing. It tells us that we are actually being sanctified. John 17, 17, in Jesus' prayer for his disciples, says to God the Father, Sanctify them by your truth, and your word is truth. Uh, This passage is a prominent passage in the Gospel of John. Uh, It's Jesus' prayer for His disciples, and not just His 12 disciples or the disciples that followed Him during His life and ministry on earth, but it's, um, it's a prayer for you and I as well. Jesus prays for His disciples. He prays for all believers in this prayer. And one of the things He prays to the Father on your behalf is that the Father would sanctify you by His truth, and his word is truth. Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth personified. Jesus is the living word of truth, and the Holy Bible is the written word of truth. And so both Jesus and the Holy Bible are the objective standard for truth. Truth is what sanctifies us. That's why at Liberty Church we say we are relentlessly reforming our attitudes and actions to conform to the standard of Scripture. We're talking about our sanctification. There's no other way to sanctify yourself than to conform your life to the standard of Scripture. In doing so, you, you will be transformed from your old image to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So we're saved by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. We're sanctified by the word of truth. And not only that, we are preserved. Uh, Flip over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reads like this. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. So listen, God is going to completely sanctify you. In fact, he has completely sanctified you. Fied you. Uh, your sanctification is a now but not yet reality. But look at what Paul goes on to say to the Thessalonians. He says, may your whole spirit, body, and soul be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has God saved us, and not only has He sanctified us, but He's preserving us. He's keeping us. He's preserving us. He's keeping us holy and blameless until the very end. He's keeping us holy and blameless until the coming of the Lord. But guess what? In the meantime, the fact is, We are going to constantly battle against the desires of the flesh. You see, just because Jesus is our Savior and Lord, it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with sin. Uh, Galatians 5.17 says this, "...for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish." You see, Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He's forgiven us. He's washed us clean by his efficacious blood. He's sanctified us, and he's going to sanctify us completely, and he's going to transform us into his own image. He's preserving us. He's keeping us blameless. But while we live in this body of sin, this body of affliction, we are going to be at war with the Spirit that is in us the new spirit the new heart not two spirits at war not two natures at war not your new nature and your old nature but your new nature and your old flesh are at war because that's what paul says here the flesh lusts against the spirit not your old spirit lusting against your new spirit No, jesus lives in you he lives in your heart He has exclusive occupancy of your heart. He doesn't share your heart with anybody or anything else. Jesus owns you now. He owns your heart. He sits on the throne of your heart. He's washed it clean and he's written uh, his law, the law of love on your heart. But the flesh is at war with your new heart, with your new nature. And as long as you live in this body, that battle is going to go on and Let's turn ahead to what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter. See if I can get there before you. Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. It says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Here we're admonished by the apostle Peter to abstain, to fight the battle. The battle is going on and Peter tells us to fight it. Don't give in to it. Don't yield to it. Don't raise the white flag and surrender to the flesh. He says, resist it. He says, abstain from your fleshly lusts, which are at war against your soul, your innermost being, your, your new heart. Abstain from them because you're, you're a pilgrim here. You're a sojourner. You're a refugee uh, in this world and in your own body. Your citizenship is somewhere else now. You're not at home here. So don't act like it. Act like you're from another place. And of course, we know that the place we're truly from is from heaven because our citizenship is now there and we're passing through this earth. Uh, And so we're constantly going to battle against the desires of the flesh, even though Jesus is our Savior and Lord. And the Bible tells us that at times sin will prevail. Flip back to Romans chapter 7. At times in this battle, sin will win. Romans chapter 7 and verse 23 says this But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Look at this bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Sometimes we give in. Paul says that that's true of himself. Sometimes he gives in. Sometimes sin takes me captive. But uh, look at what he says in the in the previous chapter, in in verse sixteen, which is, sorry, in chapter six, verse fourteen, which is an even greater reality than what he writes in Romans seven twenty three. In Romans six fourteen, Paul says, "Sin shall not have dominion over you." Sometimes it takes us captive but it will never have dominion over the believer. Why? Because we are not under law, we're under grace. You see, when we're under law, sin takes its opportunity. Uh, Sin wins when we're under law. When we're under the law of God, we can do nothing but sin. Uh, But when we are under grace, we have power over sin. We have power to, um, to abstain from the lusts of the flesh, to deny uh, the lusts of the flesh, and to have victory over those lusts. Uh, so as long as we're under law, sin is going to have its opportunity in us. Uh, but because we're under grace, we can have the victory, even though at times sin will take us captive. It will never have dominion over us. Um, so the one thing that you can take away from this, uh, this teaching on Jesus as Savior and Lord is that only Jesus can save, keep, and satisfy. Only Jesus can save you. There is no other. Only Jesus can keep you. Only Jesus can preserve you and, and, uh, and keep you blameless until he returns. You can't do it. You can't keep yourself. My goodness, have you tried to keep your own rules lately? You might have success for a day or two, but you you break even your own rules. Jesus is the only one who can keep you, and Jesus is the only one who can satisfy you. You know what? You can try to fulfill yourself with the things that used to fulfill you before you became a believer. Uh, You can give in to that temptation, and you can be taken captive by it, uh, because you think it will satisfy you, but I promise you it'll never satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy you. Only, only uh, obeying him as your Savior and Lord and, and doing what he commands, only that will truly ever satisfy you. And so, before we go any further today, I want to establish the fact that Jesus is our Savior and Lord and that only Jesus can save you, keep you, and satisfy you. Now, this series is called Mythbusters. And so now that we have taken time to establish truth and to study the core doctrine of Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want to take a few moments to uh, talk about some myths that surround this core doctrine that, make, um, that are themselves, rather, untrue, even though they might have the ring of truth to them. One thing you're going to discover about these myths that we're going to look at today, they have a ring of truth to them. Um, and, and at times, what I will say is actually completely true, but it's not the complete truth, if that makes sense. And, and that's why I say it's so important for us to have discernment, to be able to tell the difference between truth and almost truth. Truth and almost truth. And so uh, let's, let's ask the two questions that we've been asking in every part of this series, which is, what does the zeitgeist say and how has the zeitgeist crept into the church? What does the zeitgeist say? What is the, what is the prevailing mood and spirit of our age saying, and how has that crept into the church? So here's what the zeitgeist says concerning Jesus as Savior and Lord. The zeitgeist acknowledges Jesus, but it only acknowledges him as a moral teacher. That Jesus was just a good moral teacher. That Jesus just taught good moral lessons. That he lived a moral life and taught um, nice concepts for us to follow Uh, the zeitgeist zeitgeist credits Jesus as being one of many religious leaders who lived a moral life Uh, so remember the bible says that Jesus is the only savior beside him there is no other the zeitgeist credits Jesus as being one of many religious leaders who lived a moral life Or exemplary life. However, the zeitgeist does not acknowledge that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus himself claimed to be God when he said, I and the Father are one. Some people came to Jesus and asked him, Show us the Father. And Jesus said something to the effect of, If you've seen me, you've seen God. Jesus claimed to be God himself so the zeitgeist will acknowledge jesus but it will never acknowledge that he was who he said he was nor will it ever admit that jesus did what he said he came to do jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost jesus said that he came to be the rescue for sinners the zeitgeist will never acknowledge that um Remember I said the the message of Jesus is good news or it's not? Well, the message of Jesus is offensive because it says that everyone is a sinner, that there is no one good, that there's no one good enough for heaven apart from Jesus. And so uh, the zeitgeist refuses to acknowledge that Jesus is, did what he said he came to do, which is to seek and save lost sinners. People who, if Jesus didn't come, uh, would spend an eternity separated from God in hell because their sins were still on them. My dad used to say, if your sins aren't on Jesus, they're still on you. And if your sins are still on you, when you stand before the Lord, you'll have to pay the wages for those sins. And the wages for those sins is death and separation from God for eternity in hell. So the Zeitgeist says that Jesus was just a moral teacher, that he wasn't God, that he wasn't Savior. And secondly, the Zeitgeist says that Jesus was just a guru with good suggestions. The spirit of the age portrays Jesus as one who could be followed. It portrays Jesus as just another influencer as someone who could be followed that because he lived an exemplary life and because he has some good moral and ethical teaching, he's someone you could follow if you so choose. But the zeitgeist will never portray Jesus as one who must be obeyed. It portrays Jesus as one who could be followed, but never as one who must be obeyed. It presents the teachings of Jesus as good suggestions for self-improvement, not as commands to be obeyed to the glory of God. The zeitgeist will acknowledge some of the teachings of Jesus, but um, it presents those teachings as as good suggestions for self-improvement. If you want to live a better, more ethical life, then you can follow some of the teachings of Jesus. You can if you want. You can follow them to the extent that you want to improve yourself, but the zeitgeist will never uh, present the teachings of Jesus as commands to be obeyed to the glory of God. So how has the zeitgeist crept into the church? How has... How has... uh, the understanding of Jesus as just a moral teacher and just a guru with good suggestions, how has it crept into the church? Well, after giving it much thought, I've come to the conclusion that that these ideas have crept into the church through the secular self-help movement and through the Christian living slash inspirational movement. The secular self-help movement actually began in around uh, 1935 with Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is credited as being the first self-help group, where a group of people with a similar problem got together to help one another with their problem. And I think early on, one of the, one of the first tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous was to acknowledge God as supreme. Now that has changed. Um, I think one of the first tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous now is that you acknowledge some type of higher power. Well, there's a big difference between God as supreme and some other higher power of your choosing as supreme. Uh, For the alcoholic, it was their bad choices that got them into their problem in the first place. And so you can't be both the problem and the solution. Your choices can't can't be the problem and the solution. You need somebody that is objectively supreme, whether you choose it or not, whether you like it or not, to help you with your problem, to fix you, to deliver you, to save you, to rescue you. Hmm. Sounds like Jesus to me. Uh, But... This idea that Jesus was one of many religious leaders who lived a good life, exemplary life, and that, that his commands are just good suggestions rather than commands that must be obeyed. Um, those ideas have crept in through the self-help movement, through the secular self-help movement, but it's also crept into the church through inspirationalism. Uh, people love inspirational Christianity. They love inspirational songs and messages and books and cards and coffee mugs and t-shirts and plaques and different kinds of artwork. Uh, Christianity has devolved for many into inspirationalism using select portions of the Bible to inspire self-improvement. Now again, these, these people, these authors and And these these books aren't in themselves inherently bad, but inspirationalism is, uh, you know, anything by Max Lucado, for example. He's a very inspirational writer. He's a great writer, but uh, he writes inspirational books, um, you know, books from uh, Joel Osteen, like Your Best Life Now. Uh, these, are, these are inspirational books. Anything from Joyce Meyer. Even books like Purpose Driven Life, Prayer of Jabez, uh, Five Love Languages. All these books take biblical concepts and extrapolate them out. Uh, uh, and sometimes beyond uh, the text and beyond what is logical to presume of the text. And so the problem is not that these books exist, And that they inspire us. The problem is that many Christians make those books co-authoritative with the Word of God. And many times believe those books and those concepts above the Word of God. And we have to make sure that the Bible and the Bible alone is our supreme authority. Yes, other things have authority. Uh, you know, our traditions, our logic, our reason, our experiences, these have authority in our life. But they must always submit to the authority of Scripture. And And the problem is that for many Christians, they don't submit to the authority of Scripture. Indeed, they cannot because they never read the thing. They never read the Scriptures. They're too consumed with reading uh, self-improvement books from from the secular world, or inspirational books from the Christian world. And so that's how this zeitgeist of Jesus as a moral teacher and a guru with good suggestions has crept into the church. And listen, once it gets in, it creates really bad theology. And I want to talk about a system of theology for a moment that is prevalent in the church today. In fact, I believe it's the new Christianity, and when I say new Christianity, I mean no Christianity at all, but it's so prevalent in churches today that it's, it's almost replaced uh, classical Christianity, and it is what is called moralistic therapeutic deism. <laughs> and the first time I ever heard about moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD, was in the uh, docuseries American Gospel. Uh, And if you haven't seen that docu-series, I highly recommend you watch it. I think it's on Netflix. You might be able to find it on YouTube or somewhere else. But check out that series. It's incredible. It's a two-part series. The first time I ever heard of MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, was in that docu-series. And so I've done some research to discover the five points of MTD. And if you're a Calvinist listening to me today, you know that there are five points to Calvinism. And similarly, there are five points to MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. And the first point of MTD is that God exists. Okay? On that, we can agree. Classical Christians and moralistic therapeutic deists, we agree God exists. We also agree that God created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. We can agree there. That's why I said, we need discernment to discern truth from almost truth, and so the first point of MTD is kind of a catch-all, and we say, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense. We we can agree there." Uh, but even within that first point, there are some there are some definitions of words, and and um, you know, there are some meanings to to that first point that um, that even there classical Christians cannot adhere to fully, but it sounds good. It has a ring of truth to it, but here's the second point of MTD, and that is that the God who exists and created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. Listen to this, as taught in the Holy Bible and by most world religions. So here we get off the rails. So the God who, the people who, uh, the God of MTD exists and created the world, and he wants people to be good and nice and fair, just like he says in the Bible and just like the other religions say. And what's interesting about the good and nice and fair of MTD is that it's not the good and nice and fair that God describes in the Bible. The goodness that uh, MTD ascribes to is not the fruit of the spirit of goodness, and the niceness that it ascribes to is not the kindness uh, that is a fruit of the spirit. And the fairness that MTD ascribes is not the justice uh, and the balanced scales of the Bible, but it's something completely different, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So the first point of MTD is that God exists, created the world, and ordered it, and watches over it. The second point is that God's uh, sorry, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, just like the Bible says, and all the other religions. Point number three: uh, the central goal of MTD, or sorry, yeah, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Is that true? Is that, is that why you're here? To be happy and feel good about yourself? Um, the Westminster Confession says that the, the chief goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That God is the center of our life, not ourselves. Now, when we make God the center of our, of our life, we will be satisfied. Remember I said earlier, Jesus save, keeps, saves, keeps, and satisfies. When we make God the center of our life, we will be satisfied. It will fulfill us. But the central goal of our life is not to be happy and feel good about ourselves. The central goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever. Uh, The fourth point of MTD is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life. He doesn't need to be Lord of one's life. Um, God just needs to show up whenever he needs to solve a problem in our life. God doesn't need to be involved in our everyday life, but when we need him, we can shout out to him and we can send some prayers up or some good vibes, some good thoughts, some positive feelings. And God will show up and, and solve our problems for us. Do you know any Do you know any Christians that that view God this way that the only time they ever pray or read the Bible or go to church is when something's going wrong in their life? The only time they ever talk about God is when things are going bad. They never talk about the good things of the Lord. They never edify themselves in the Word of the Lord or, or um, you know in in His presence, but. Only when things are going bad do they call out to God. They they may be an adherent unknowingly or knowingly to MTD, to moralistic therapeutic deism. They don't acknowledge God except for when they need him. And then the fifth point of MTD um, is that good people go to heaven and there's no such thing as hell. And so this is moralistic therapeutic deism. Now it's not an official religion and and most people who ascribe to it don't even know those three words. But as I've listed those five points of MTD, I think you know people that, that ascribe to it. Maybe you yourself ascribe to it. Maybe you believe that God just wants us to be nice and that God wants us to be happy and feel good about ourselves. And he... He only needs to show up when something goes bad and, and you know, people are pretty good. And so good people are going to go to heaven and there's really no such thing as hell. If you believe those things, then you don't believe classic Christianity. You, you aren't a part of the, the true church. You've believed another gospel, um, which is no gospel at all. You're following another Jesus, which is not Jesus. You've turned away from listening to the truth. You've wandered off into myths. And you run the risk of losing your reward. You you run the risk of, of not having the father or the son. Let's talk a little bit more about MTD before we conclude. The beliefs of MTD place a high value on being good. Just open up any social media app and see who's virtue signaling. They're likely... People who ascribe to MTD and don't know it. Anytime you see someone signaling their virtue, talking about how good they are and how um, inclusive they are, and and how uh, you know how much they they accept everyone just as they are. Anybody that's doing that kind of stuff constantly, they're uh, probably an adherent of of moralistic therapeutic deism. They love to signal their own virtue because they place a high value on being good. Uh, But in moralistic therapeutic deism, the quote-unquote good is defined by pop culture and not by the moral imperatives of the Bible. And so remember I said earlier uh, in point two of MTD, God wants people to be good. But MTD defines good differently than the Bible. Goodness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, but that's not what defines good in MTD. In MTD, good is defined by pop culture, not the moral imperatives of the Bible. And so affirming behaviors that the Bible calls sin might be seen as good in MTD, while calling those behaviors sin might be seen as bad. As intolerant, as bigoted, as hateful. See how it's backwards? It has the ring of truth, but it's actually error. The doctrines of MTD are therapeutic in that uh, their primary value is that you would feel good about yourself. And this feeling good about yourself is achieved by your self-help, not your sanctification. So, moralistic therapeutic deism doesn't need Jesus to be Savior or Lord. In fact, in MTD, you're your own Savior. And you're your own Lord. You don't need Jesus to save you. And you don't need Jesus to sanctify you. You can save yourself. You can, you can help yourself. You can um, make yourself better. You can be the best version of yourself by just applying some of the the teachings of Jesus, by taking his suggestions and maybe the suggestions of Muhammad and and Buddha and and, uh, a few others as well. MTD sees God as a divine butler, a cosmic therapist, a heavenly Santa Claus or an intergalactic superhero whose job it is to take care of us and avenge those who offend us whose job it is to make us into the best version of ourselves, not to conform us to the image of Jesus. Today, churches are filled with people and led by pastors who equate MTD with Christianity, but they are by no means the same thing. So to be fair, MTD is the pendulum swing all the way to the left, um it's a reaction to it's the culture's reaction to biblical Christianity, and it's a pendulum swing to the extreme left. Um, but there are other reactions to classic Christianity that swing all the way to the right, and they are themselves just as dangerous as MTD. For a moment, let's talk about them. Um, the first doctrine. Uh, that is on the opposite end of the pendulum swing from MTD is what's known as Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation is summed up in this question. Did you make Jesus your Lord? You may have made him your Savior, but did you make Jesus your Lord? Well, today we've talked about Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we've established that he is both. He's not one or the other. Uh, Those two attributes of Jesus are never separated. He is always Savior, and he is always Lord. There's no such thing as having him as your Savior, but not as your Lord. Lord. And so, Lordship Salvation is based in extreme legalism. Um, You know, Lordship Salvation says if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Lordship Salvation says only the, the truly committed get into heaven. Lordship Salvation says that unless you have uh, submitted your life to Christ and pledged to serve Him exclusively, you cannot have salvation or assurance of salvation. And you'll live your whole life striving for something that you already have under Lordship Salvation. Uh, Lordship Salvation... um, Lordship Salvation came about because there was a group of Christians that didn't like the quality of people that were in the church. And so they raised the standard and said, well, you know what? These people say they love Jesus, but they don't act like it. So let's let's put together a list of rules and behaviors that prove that somebody is Christian, is truly saved. Well, you know what? Here's the reality, based on the core doctrine that we studied earlier. Here's the reality. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. He has rescued us from the power of sin. He set us free through His death and resurrection. He is sanctifying us and has sanctified us completely. And He is preserving us blameless. That's our reality as believers. And to be fair, at times, our life, our outward appearance does not reflect our inward reality. Because sometimes sin takes us captive. I always say that old habits die hard. Sometimes the stuff you used to struggle with before you became a believer sticks around for a long time. Your old habits, your old vices, your old reactions, the, the places you go and the people you associate with. You know what, sometimes they stick around for a long time and they cause us a lot of undue stress. But um, you know what, just because those old habits die hard, it doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means that our outward appearance is not reflecting our inward reality. And so the answer, uh, you know, to, to that is not to go to Lordship, salvation, and and extreme legalism, rule-keeping, the answer to that is to go to the Word. Remember we said when Jesus prayed for his disciples, he said, sanctify them with your truth. Your Word is truth. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you want your outward appearance to reflect your inward reality? Then get into the book. Let the Word change you. Don't let another doctrine uh, try to change you. Uh, you know Galatians five. Uh, Paul talks about you know Christ set you free. Don't be subject again to a yoke of bondage. Don't don't put yourself under another yoke, another bondage. Don't go to extreme legalism to try to get your outward appearance to reflect the inward reality. Go to the Word. Let the Word sanctify you. Jesus is your Savior and Lord. That's the reality. And that can be worked out of you if you'd go to the Word and let it sanctify you. And the other thing quickly, and I know we've, uh, we've spent some time here today, but the other thing is uh, sinless perfectionism. That's just as dangerous as MTD and Lordship Salvation. Sinless perfectionism is the idea that as a Christian, you'll never ever sin that you need to get to the place in this life where you will never, ever sin. Uh, That's bogus. The Bible tells us in the book of James, for example, that we all struggle in many ways. We read several times this morning that, uh, that, that, um, that there is a war in our members, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In this life, as long as we're in this body of affliction we will always struggle with sin. And at times, sin will have uh, or take us captive. But it will never have dominion over us. And so what I always say is, in this life, we will never be sinless, but we will sin less. As we are sanctified, we will actually sin less. But we will never uh, achieve a state of sinless perfection in this life. Jesus achieved that for us in his life. He came and lived a perfect life. He didn't just come and live a moral life. He came and lived a perfect life on your behalf. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Christ's sinless perfectionism has been imputed to your new heart. And the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith, by trust in the fact that Jesus did it for you. So you're not going to reach a state of sinless perfection in this life. Don't even bother trying to get sinlessly or to get perfectly sinless. It won't happen. But you will sin less. As Jesus sanctifies you and conforms you to his image, you'll sin a lot less than you used to. Listen, there's a huge difference between struggling against sin and loving sin. There's a big difference between sinning and practicing sin. Right, You practice something that you want to get better at. As a believer, you don't want to get better at sin. You hate sin now. You have a new nature that hates sin. It's at war with the sin that is in your members. That's why uh, in the moment, if you give in to sin, you think it's going to make you feel good, or you're going to be satisfied by it, and then the second it's over, you realize, oh, that's not who I am anymore. That didn't satisfy me because it's not who I am. There's a huge difference between struggling against sin and at times uh, uh, being taken captive by it and loving it. If you wake up in the morning and, and you want to go out and set world records for sin, then I want to tell you, you you haven't heard the full gospel yet. You You aren't truly under the grace of God yet. If that's what you want to do, if that's your reaction to the message of grace, then you haven't really heard it yet. So keep studying, keep listening. So in conclusion, I want to say this. If you're listening to me today and you haven't made Jesus your Savior, I bring you good news of great joy. Jesus can save you today. I want you to receive Jesus into your heart. I want you to make him your Savior. And in becoming your Savior, He will become your Lord. Romans chapter 10 says that with the with the mouth one confesses, and with the heart one believes. For whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Romans 10:13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. If you call on his name, he will save you because he has the power to save you. He is God. He is the savior and he has the authority to save you because he is Lord. Jesus has both the power and authority to save you and he's the only one who does. Jesus saves you just like you are but He won't keep you as you are. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to change you and transform you from the inside out so that you can better reflect His glory. And then, I want to inspire you to obey Jesus today. If Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then I want you to let Him lead your life. You know, by confessing that Jesus is Lord, we are actually committing ourselves to obey Him. Jesus is not just a guru with good suggestions he's not just our our buddy that tells us what we could do if we want to no Jesus is our Lord and we must obey him in fact Jesus said to some people who called him Lord in Luke 6 46 why do you call me Lord but do not do what I say An acknowledgment of Jesus' lordship is logically accompanied by a submission to Jesus' authority. Listen, Jesus didn't die to make you moral. He died to make you his. You see, Jesus is our lord. He owns us. He's our master. And as such, he has a right to tell us what to do. But listen, doing what Jesus tells us to do, doing what Jesus wants us to do is actually the most fulfilling thing that we could ever do with our life. Jesus loves us and wants to be glorified in and through us. We are the reward of His suffering. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become His righteousness who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising His shame. We were that joy. We were the reward of His suffering. Jesus didn't die to make us moral, good, nice, fair. He died to make us His so that we would glorify Him. And it's the most fulfilling thing that we can ever do. Here's the last word. Jesus is Lord. It's the truth whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not. It is a fact. He is more than just the promised deliverer. He is more than just the Savior. He is those things and he is Lord of all. He is God. And the Bible tells us that someday everyone will submit to that truth. God, the Bible says, exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever.